Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, the podcast on how technologies are improving healthcare around the world. I'm your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and the guest of the show today is Hal Wolf, the CEO of HIMSS. The topics we addressed were interoperability, the role of HIMSS in the digital health community, how to create a successful change management strategy in healthcare so culture doesn't eat it for breakfast, and what are going to be the highlights of the HIMSS Global Conference and Exhibition taking place between February 11th and 15th in Orlando, Florida. A few more information about Hal. He actually came into healthcare IT after 20 years of working in the e-commerce and entertainment business. He has successful multi-industry experiences in product development, marketing, distribution, IT, and innovation implementation. He became the CEO of HIMS in 2017. Enjoy the conversation and do subscribe to the podcast so you will be notified about the next episode automatically. I can already mention that some of the upcoming episodes will be about the role of hackathons in healthcare innovation and an insight into the Estonian national digital infrastructure. If you will like the discussion, do leave a rating or a review in iTunes so other listeners interested in digital health will be able to find the show as well. Hal, do you have a favorite Netflix show or do you even watch anything on Netflix? Oh, <laughs> great, great question. Um, I have to think about um, my television viewing. Um, right now, no, I'm not watching specifically anything on networks from a series standpoint. Um, <clears throat> we're actually in our household going back and watching the house series. So we've started on season one and we're working our way through. The reason I'm asking this is because uh, probably not a lot of people know that you were in the entertainment business for a very long time. So in the 80s, you first worked in sales and marketing for MTV Networks, and later you were a VP of content at Time Warner. So uh, what did you do at that time? So I was um, very fortunate in the 1990s to be tabbed as head of programming and at Time Warner's full service network, which was a large scale trial working on the concepts of what we now call video on demand. And it was built in Florida covering 4,000 homes as sort of a test environment. And it was both a marketing as well as a technical trial and the largest video on demand trial in its day. And the concept was quite new, which was to take movies and put them on servers and then from your home through a modified set-top box to be able to press a button and actually stream a movie into a house for individual control. It's something that we completely take for granted today, both on our phones and in our houses, but it was revolutionary and groundbreaking in 1993, 94, 95, 96, when we were building the full service network and trying out this new technology. The fun part, when I started, my initial 
title was vice president of programming, which when you come from the entertainment industry uh, means television programming or moving programming and what you're putting on TV. So I received a call one day um, from our technical partner, which at that time was Silicon Graphics. And they said they had a big problem that they wanted me to come out to California and talk about. So I came out to California and we sat down and they looked at me and said that they were having problems streaming uh, content from the original digital switch from AT&T called the Globe 2000. And the MIPS processor on the on the master board was not large enough to be able to hold it. And they needed to rebuild the software in order to be able to stage it appropriately and buffer. And they started going into a relatively deep discussion. I just like started going, time out. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. This is not my area of expertise. And they said, well, you're vice president of programming. We have a big software programming problem here. I said, okay, got it. Let's, um, let's change my title right now to vice president of content and let's start over. So I, I, I learned very quickly that, um, we had 150 amazing software developers at our disposal. And either the head of content was going to have to learn software development in deep architectural understanding or 150 software programmers were going to have to learn the entertainment industry. So I wound up moving to California uh, for six weeks and through uh, wonderful patience, some great architects did a real deep dive in understanding architecture as best I could and learned how to translate the needs of the entertainment business back to software developers. And I think since then, I've probably spent the mass majority of my career in that type of an environment of taking business needs, and in this case, healthcare needs, and translating it back so we could develop the software around it in order to meet the business problem. So up until then, you had no experience or not knowledge about IT? Well, other than um, in college, I had done what many people did, and I took programming, um, Fortran, and COBOL. So I understood certainly the basics of software programming, and I understood the basics of how code would be written. But turning that into um, a deeper understanding of architecture and how it plays on motherboards and the staggering of uh, large-scale data, that was but, you know, leaps and bounds, that's like uh, tiddlywinks or, or, build, or wooden blocks compared to actually building a skyscraper. From all this, how did you shift to healthcare? It seems quite a big jump. It, it did seem like it, um, but there was actually a common thread that went across. So at, at MTV, my main focus was actually on distribution, programming distribution. So we would negotiate with the cable operators for distribution of MTV, Nickelodeon, Comedy Central, VH1, the basic programming elements that existed at MTV. And Time Warner was one of my clients during that period. And then later I moved actually to the Home Shopping Network where I was in charge of national distribution against their four networks and their multiple uh, pay-per-view platforms. 
And what that was all about was understanding at that time how individuals purchase things on television. And it was the beginning, if you would, of interactivity in the sense of seeing something within a different medium, pressing buttons or making phone calls and initiating um, commerce out of it. And this was really the beginning of critical platforms of ordering items on television and the development of interactive television, which is what the Time Warner project was, was well beyond video on demand. You could purchase items, you could order stamps from the post office, you could order pizzas, we had gaming. It was actually quite a robust environment given um, the short time frame and within four years of building it and running the trials. And that was all about understanding individuals, how they react differently, what their segmentations are. So there's a difference between kids who are ordering games, of course, and um, uh, the parents who are ordering different kinds of movies and what services would be used. And I was involved in that, and it really led to itself to the development of a career in e-business. When that was in, I moved from Florida to London and helped put in what is now Sky Interactive and their digital platform at that time, B-Sky B, um, and British Broadcasting. And it was an opportunity to get more deeply involved in how individuals related to interactive um, footprints. When I came back to the States, I worked in the same space of e-business from London. And a gentleman who was the CIO at the telecom where I worked, which was Quest Communications at the time, became the CIO at Kaiser Permanente. And he was there about nine months and eventually reached out and gave me an opportunity to come into the healthcare industry because we were beginning to put in EMRs. And this is back in 2003. And I made the move to healthcare, fell madly in love with the space, saw this incredible opportunity to bring a different way of delivering care. It was very exciting. Your job at uh, Kaiser was to design an end-to-end -end information system, architecture, and software development and functional enhancements for the Colorado region. So this was in 2004, and 15 years later, healthcare IT has developed significantly in many senses, not uh, in the best way. So the hot topics today are the quality of data, data standardization and interoperability. And uh, Shannon Sartin uh, said at the Exponential Medicine Conference that once you really dig uh, deeply into interoperability, you realize that you are potentially addressing an unsolvable problem. Where is your stand on that? Well, I I would look up and say that their goals of interoperability and of course now with HIMS and HIMS is a nonprofit organization that's a global thought leader and one of our critical goals is the advancement of interoperability because to your point the ability to get the proper data and turn it into information which then fundamentally allows a physician or a nurse practitioner or consumer to interact with all the variety of healthcare innovations that are taking place, this ultimately has to lend itself to degrees of standardization and interoperability. I don't know if I would agree that it's a, quote, unsolvable problem. 
I would say if you're looking for a 100% solution, that might be right, but we can get 90% of the way there. So I happen to be an optimist that as we are getting more and more mass around the use of digital health and the recognition that data has to be available and information has to be available for us to improve care and care outcomes, I think people are developing standards on their own. I'm sure we'll get to fire as an example, HL7 in just a second. Um, but is it is it completely unsolvable? No, but it's going to take some hard work to get there. Um, I recently read um, a research survey uh, from Demo Consulting um, about healthcare uh, interoperability, healthcare IT and AI. And uh, healthcare executives saw the interoperability and data management as the biggest obstacles to digital transformation. One of the reasons being that uh, even if there is a desire uh, to connect different systems, there, there are problems when you try to connect the same patients from different that visits different institutions and other issues of course agree agree completely i think it is a big obstacle it is a big um challenge for us and we're going to have to figure a different way forward other than just letting everything happen on its own I came across uh, a few numbers regarding, regarding uh, Kaiser and how they solved the interoperability, which they did inside their system because they implemented Epic. So the data that I got was that in 2002, Kaiser uh, abandoned its attempt to build its own clinical information system with IBM, which meant that they had to write off uh, almost half a million uh, in software assets. And in the end, it took 10 years to implement uh, EPIC for the price of 6 billion US dollars. So kind of the question that arises here for me is what is the price to achieve some sort of connectivity and um, to which extent do you think that can be decreased with new technologies today? Well, I think that the Kaiser um, effort, first of all, was incredible and it was a a goal that was set by George Halverson, who was the CEO at the time. And George had a wonderful vision of the connectivity. And the decision to move to Epic was the recognition that internal software development in um, healthcare systems, and Kaiser certainly has tremendous resources. That's not our forte, right? That's not what we do on a daily basis. Our goal is to take care of patients. But in those days, the transformation of pulling the data together, understanding how to take 35 different sources of data at the time, bring them together so we could start to develop clinical decision support, thinking about the implementation of Epic, um, it certainly was cutting edge. And one of the reasons that the cost was what it was is because it was new. And so many of the techniques that are used today for implementing uh, large-scale EMRs, um, the way that data is handling, they didn't exist. And there are so many more off-the-shelf capabilities um, and applications that exist today that you don't have to build them yourself anymore like we did. So we had to build our own clinical decision support and integrate it into the Epic platform before they had that capability. But the biggest part of the time lag was not so much the technology. 
It was the recognition that any large project has three components, which is people, process, and technology. So we started at Kaiser actually in our region in Colorado, and we were the first region to take the EPIC program, the new one, and roll it out end to end across the entire region. And then it rolled to the next region and the next, and then finally finished in the Californias, where you literally have millions and millions of people being taken care of, tens of hospitals, hundreds of clinics. And so it was done judiciously. It was done in such a way just to educate the workforce along the way. And of course, all of these techniques had to come into play um, of how you do that type of an implementation. Today, the whole industry, no matter where you are in the globe, is just much more sophisticated in the way that we go through the launch of EMRs and the integration of existing data. And I'd like to think that some of the paths that we blazed back in those days at Kaiser has helped the entire industry to be able to execute more efficiently. So what would your advice be when it comes to healthcare IT implementation? Because there's a lot of knowledge uh, around how the implementation should look like in theory. Uh, there is an awareness that culture uh, can um, kill strategy or can eat strategy for breakfast. Managers are aware of the fact that you need to have people on board, that you need to have... Um, Uh, so ambassadors, so uh, strong users that will get others excited about IT as well. But in the end, there's so many unsuccessful stories um, when it comes to implementation. So what's your advice on how to change that? Well, I think um, it's a great question. And the challenge that I think you see wherever an implementation has failed is often wrapped around, as you said, the lack of culture or the preparation of the staff. What is it you're trying to achieve? If organizations come into it with the attitude of our goal is to put in an EMR, then you will put in an EMR, but it doesn't necessarily change the way you design and deliver services. So there's a formula that we use, and I'm thrilled to always show it to groups, which is NT plus OO equals COO. And that stands for new technology plus old organization equals costly old organization. And that fundamentally means that if you throw technology into an organization, but you do not change the way you function, You simply are layering in a different way of taking paper, but you're not changing how you use the information. If you're not teaching your clinicians, your physicians, your patients, how the information can enhance care, then you will be spending money unnecessarily because you won't get the advancement. The entire goal is to improve access and quality. So it has to be a thoughtful relationship between the caregivers, the administrators. There has to be common goals and objectives as to why you put in new technologies. And I think this is one of the most important lessons learned because to your point, culture does eat strategy for breakfast. 
Demo Consulting recently published a survey on healthcare IT demand. And one of the things that they found was that the emergence of Amazon, Google and Apple in healthcare is seen as the biggest threat to technology vendor community. Um, and uh, the influence of EHR vendors such as Epic and Cerner is expected to grow. What do you think uh, about that from the HIMSS perspective? After all, HIMSS is the largest healthcare IT vendor community caretaker in in a way, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we're very excited about it. Um, there's no question that that Google's entrance and Amazon's entrance and the consortiums they've put together are potential game changers and disruptors to the market. Um, in the end, we're all using the same goal, or I should say we're all wrapped around the same goal, which is to improve the delivery of care, to make it more economically efficient, um, some of the organizations are potentially coming in and looking at it from a cost standpoint in terms of um, benefits administration or, and figuring out the cost of how care is going to be delivered and focusing in on, for example, um, corporate accounts where they have services. So they could be an intermediary, if you would, in lowering costs. Others, I'm sure, like um, Amazon, will be looking to bring in angles around procurement as benefits to people that sign up with them. But I think this is just a part of the evolution. If healthcare itself and the institutions that exist today are not innovating quickly and figuring out how to develop services which meet a brand new consumer expectation, of services being delivered to them through their phone or quickly, they run a huge risk of these disruptors taking away their market share. If there's one thing we know Google knows quite well or an Amazon knows quite well, which is how do I develop services from a consumer point of view? And the healthcare industry is learning that and it's been learning it slowly. Uh, it's an industry that doesn't speed to change very easily. But there is a strong argument to be made that that runway is getting pretty short. And if you're not an organization that can become more agile in the development of new services and products from a consumer delivery point of view, they may not be the consumer, the patient, the citizen may not be waiting around for you to change. They're going to be alternatives. So this is competition in the market. It's long overdue in many ways. And we can certainly anticipate this disruption to continue. From your experience uh, in the entertainment business, is there anything that you could say that uh, organizations could learn and are not doing at the moment uh, in the current pursuit of the user experience, of the emphasis on the patient as a consumer? Well, there's some, it's a great question. I think that there's some parallels without question from the entertainment industry, as well as banking industry, travel industry. Think about the disruptions in those. So if you look at just the entertainment industry, and if you looked at um, the movie industry, you mentioned Netflix earlier. Think of the disruption that Netflix brought. First, they brought a distribution method that was different, and it was distribution of other people's products. So the movie studios were not directly impacted. Then Netflix went to the production of their own products and their own services. 
their own shows, their own movies, their own series, those begin to grab market share. And so the studios are now competing with Netflix as a studio. So you can begin to see the parallels that if you're a large healthcare system, here comes a competitor. How do I match my capabilities to theirs? How do I super serve the customer I already have so I don't lose them? How do I bring forward ease of access to services to the home or services to my family? And how do I think about the segmentation of services, recognizing that the way I deliver service to pediatric care and to the mother of the child may be different than what happens to a senior citizen. Um, so these are the questions that healthcare systems are finally grappling with. And I think the ones who are quicker and faster to adapt innovation have a much better chance of surviving. I absolutely agree that the user experience and the environment that the patient comes in has to be friendly. After all, if you're sick, you're more vulnerable than uh, usual and it's uh, soothing if you come into an environment that makes you feel at least a little bit better. For example, if you go for a massage or to a beauty salon, you know, everything is uh, very calming, very soothing. There's nice music everywhere. And just by getting there, uh, you feel better, whereas in healthcare, it's the opposite. So I understand the focus uh, and the need for improvement in the user experience. Uh, however, I recently had um, a discussion with an anesthesiologist from Australia. And what I thought was interesting uh, that he said when it comes to con consumerization of healthcare was that uh, once you let capital in the healthcare um, the core focus of healthcare might change. Um, that is the healthcare outcomes, if you know what I'm trying to, to, to say. If you start focusing too much on the satisfaction of patients, to a certain degree, maybe the emphasis on how care should be delivered uh, gets lost. Private systems have more gaps in accessibility uh, to healthcare services, but the public healthcare systems usually have better health outcomes. So what do you think about that? Well, I, I, I think that the concern about how do we stay focused on value and the delivery of quality of care from an outcome point of view without question has to be front and center. It needs to be the starting point. Um, so there's no debate among anyone that better outcomes and better quality is the target. We also see the development of value-based programs that people are paid on the outcome as opposed to just the action of delivering care. And so I think value-based um, remuneration and payments capabilities, reimbursement programs are really the cornerstone of where most of the industry is going. And that's an important transformation away from fee-for-service in the United States. Um, You don't have the same fee-for-service in most other countries because they're more nationalized care, but they still exist. And there's always going to be concern about that. But um, let's separate the two. I can deliver a better quality product 
and do it in a way that is better for the individual. I don't see them as separate in the sense of saying you have to do one versus the other. It's a part of our responsibility. It's a part of the challenge. Some people think about it as the fourth uh, challenge um, in terms of making sure that the patient experience is as good as the outcomes that are being measured. And competition will drive both. In 2017, uh, HIMSS acquired Health 2.0. It was a nice merge of uh, already established players with um, new newcomers such as startups in, in healthcare. And uh, you've been traveling a lot thanks to the merger also. So what's your view on how the two organizations are complementing each other or how HIMSS is changing thanks to uh, this change? What, what's the main purpose? What would you like to see? Uh, how would you like to see uh, the organization developing? Well, we're, we're thrilled with the, um, the partnership and the acquisition of Health 2.0 Because what it brought into Kim's was an important avenue into the up and coming and in the innovation and the startup community, as well as those looking for that second and third round of funding. Why is that important? It's important because healthcare systems are all looking for the right innovation. They're all trying to understand what's coming around the corner. And we wanted to find a way at Hims to support that. Um, HIMS can be a, an amazing facilitator and they can be, we can be an amazing group that brings people together for education, but we also want to be supportive and pushing the industry on the innovation side, thinking about the reform of the healthcare industry and where it's headed. And innovation is the key behind that. So our goal was to integrate more innovation into the front facing of healthcare systems around the globe. So when you look at where Health 2.0 is today, it continues its presence in the United States, but we have fully integrated Health 2.0 as an example into HIMSS Europe. And we're doing the same thing in Asia PAC, where we're literally merging our events and our communications so that when you come to a HIMSS event, you're also looking at what's the best, the brightest, and what's upcoming. So I think the acquisition to your specific question has helped us lean more forward and be more assertive into the overall innovation space. And hopefully through our um, efforts to do that, it's helping all the healthcare systems and the governments and the people who work with us see more innovation and keep alive the drive towards innovation in their systems. Do you think there's anything more that HIMSS could do in terms of influence on the healthcare IT um, on a national level, let's say in the US? You know, because um, it's one thing to bring people together. It's another thing to then uh, turn these ideas into action. What's uh, unfortunate with some conferences in general is that um, even if the program is really good, After a week or after two weeks or a month, you know, people just visit another conference and everything that was said in the first one is almost forgotten if there is no uh, additional 
um, effort to move things forward? Well, HIMSS is a member-based organization. So in the United States alone, we have over 70,000 members in the U.S. Globally, when you include Health 2.0, we have over 100,000 people who are engaged with us within the member space. And we're growing internationally rather quickly. Behind that is just not an organization of 420 people, which is HIMSS. But we really represent, we coordinate, we have lots of working committees and communities that are made up of our members. Our boards are largely made up of our members. These are people that are dedicated to moving healthcare forward. So when you look in local cities, when you look in our chapters in the United States and in Canada, when you look at our communities in Europe, whether it's the Italian community or the Nordic community, We bring together people from all components of the ecosystem to try and solve problems, to have conversations, to share best practices, identify the challenges around interoperability. And we do this not only at the provider level, the payer level, but we work very hard with governments and our government relations teams to look at proposals, rules, new regulations making recommendations, and we're asked for our opinion all the time, and we share our opinion all the time, sometimes when they may not ask directly, about what we believe needs to be done in order to propagate digital health. And our recommendations, by and large, come from our members and the innovators within our member community that are telling us and working with us what they need to be successful. And this ties into the theme this year at HIMSS, which is around the champions of health. Basically, each and every one of us, and we would like to thank every one of our members and the people who come to the events are fundamentally champions of health, looking for those opportunities to make change, looking for what's new, and understanding the policies and the programs necessary, the rules, whatever it takes within their local environment in order to move the ball forward. And the goal of our organization is to help them do that, as well as show them what the best practices are from other places that they may or may not wish to adapt, and then support them in their endeavors. Yes, I absolutely agree that uh, bringing people together, uh, bringing different perspectives, bringing different cultures uh, in the same room behind the same table is uh, or can be a catalyzer of innovation and uh, new ideas. Otherwise, I wouldn't even be doing this podcast, uh, which aims to, you know, just present global perspectives and different healthcare systems because they do differ so very much. You can be amazed by how you, the, the basic concept of disease and uh, the lack of health is tackled in so many different ways. And uh, you yourself have been traveling a lot, especially in December. You went to Europe to visit the public health conference in Slovenia. Then you traveled to London and China and Asia and back to the US. Um, I'm really uh, curious to hear uh, what did you see? What was new for you? What kind of ideas or um, concepts did you come across that uh, got you thinking or you think that uh, maybe the listeners should hear about? I think the takeaways are, are pretty consistent, which is, first of all, 
no matter where you go in the globe, we're all facing the same challenges. So we do have aging populations, no matter which population you're in. We have chronic disease burden, which is increasing largely because the aging population, the silver tsunami, if you would, um, is living longer. And just by virtue of living longer, they're developing more disease burdens. And frankly, we're much better at identifying and registering and, and noting disease burden and categorizing them. So you see the numbers going up partially because of all of the aging and people living longer. And also we're much better at diagnosing. Geographic displacement is a huge challenge, a third challenge. How do I ensure that an individual receives the best care possible or access to health? And we often think about geographic displacement as a rural setting. But one of the things that's very clear to me is looking up and saying that it's also an urban challenge as well. People can live in the middle of a city and they can live very close to a hospital, but it does not mean that they get easy access to the services because there can be long waiting lines. And when you tie all of those pieces together and you think about in Japan, a senior population, which is growing older, they do not have enough nurses and practitioners to take care of them, which, by the way, is consistent around the globe. So they're thinking about how do we develop robots? How do we develop sensors in the homes? How do we keep track of individuals that are in chronic state so we know that a problem is developing before it becomes fatal or too critically down the line? Finally, there's funding challenges almost in every country. And we have got an educated consumer that's looking for faster responses and the lack of actionable information where we started the conversation, how we get the right information into people's hands. And then the last piece, which has really been the big aha for me this year, gets back to the growing staff shortages that exist around the globe. Right now, according to the WHO, we have a gap of over 7 million slots that could be filled in healthcare. We just don't have the people to do it. And that gap is expanding to 13 million over the next 10 to 15 years. So the point in the end is that we have to find a different way to deliver care. And I actually believe that digital health is one of the great equalizers. It helps poor. It helps wealthy. It extends care to people that can't get it readily. And it also produces an opportunity for patient engagement that may not have existed before. So we're all solving the same problems. Um, I think the learnings are many. People are making incredible adjustments in their delivery of care from a quality standpoint. And I've never seen information shared um, about best practices so efficiently as it is today. The HIMS Global Conference uh, is going to take place between February 11th and 15th. Is there anything that you could uh, say that you look forward to most? What do you think will be the highlights? Well, it's, um, it is coming up in Orlando, Florida, and we're expecting another 40,000 people. Um, people sometimes look up and say that the large conferences are going away or something of that nature. But the reality is, is when you can come to the HIMSS conference, you see besides um, vendors that now have the largest display of the ecosystem and capabilities in one place for you as an individual to see, that's a huge plus because 
you can't necessarily see all of those things if you're just sitting in your hospital, right? We have hundreds of classroom events where people are sharing their best practices, their stories, problem-solving workshops where people come together and they exchange those ideas. Uh, sometimes just getting people in one location between the restaurants, the bars, or talking in the hallway is some of the best exchanges that occur. We have over 90 countries that are now represented um, at the HIMSS Global Conference, thus the name Global Conference. We have groups, sometimes 50, 100, 200 coming from different countries that have special workshops that exist by region, uh, complementing the communities that we've set up around the globe. As we always say, people walk in the door basically with three or four problems and they get to go home with six or seven solutions. And that's what we're after, to make it an incredibly efficient environment. Is there any technology that you would say is uh, uh, getting, uh, is, is more most interesting for you? The things that are currently talked about most is, of course, AI, blockchain, then voice technology. What do you want to uh, know more about at the moment? Where do you see the biggest potential? I mean, you hit on the big ones right now, right? So first of all, AI has been getting more and more integrated into healthcare solutions, and it's picking up steam. Now, the dependency on AI, of course, is better data, better quality of data um, and information, and that's a focal point. We also see cybersecurity as a significant area of improvement and focused as it should be. And, and cloud technology is changing the way healthcare delivers. So one of the areas and one of the um, programs that I'm actually looking forward to is one that I happen to be moderating, which is on cloud. What are the strategies of the cloud providers? How do they differ? And more importantly, how do they plan on handling these vast amounts of data in a secure way so that systems that currently today have a lot of data and technology sitting in their own data centers can potentially free up those resources and have greater flexibility through cloud. For the United States, we're expecting some rules releases. We're going to be hearing from the leaders of our government in the U.S., um, both at ONC, HHS, CMS, which are responsible for um, technical standards, technical rules, Medicare, Medicaid, how data is being brought forward, the blue button uh, programs, which is designed for the ease of the transference of data information. And then finally, our opening panel, which I'm also thrilled to be a part of, is really talking about um, consumer data and exchange and how that information is going to be brought forward. So how do we create the rules to ensure that occurs for maximum flexibility? So the industry is getting very focused on it. And I, every day, think about where is it coming from, the data? How do we ensure best interoperability? And how do we do it in a secure and tight way? And then how do we bring AI into it um, really for maximum outcome? Let's wrap up with a piece of advice or your opinion for uh, healthcare executives. 
uh, the technologies that I mentioned, so artificial intelligence, uh, blockchain, um, uh, big data, these are all buzzwords that can be um, very confusing when you try to understand them in depth. And as, at, um, in the same way, as medicine is increasingly demanding for healthcare professionals because there's just so much information overload, it's very difficult for healthcare executives to make informed decisions when uh, on top of all their management issues, they have to deal with um, deep understanding of all these new technologies. Is this getting overwhelming? And what would your advice be how to tackle this in the best possible manners without 10 additional assistants? If you're an executive in healthcare, you have an obligation, a responsibility, if not a burning need to at least understand some of these definitions because they're going to be impacting you directly. And what do these technologies mean? Um, we at HIMSS have actually been working very hard to create avenues in which they can become educated, both at the HIMSS conference, outside the HIMSS conference. And I'll give you a wonderful example. Um, we have partnered with Harvard Medical School. And in June of this year, have a special class that is being um, created. It's got a limit of 50 slots, but it's designed for executives to be able to come to Harvard in conjunction with HIMSS for a three-day class to focus exactly what you're talking about. Let's demystify the information. Let's get people to understand how they need to be thinking about these advanced technologies, build them into their overall strategies, and what they need to be looking for in order to help understand where their organization is going. It is very hard to move your organization and innovate if you do not understand the underlying technologies that is driving an entire industry. So these educational programs are a big part of our workforce development. Um, so that's one option. But getting to hymns, coming, learning, listening to the discussions, walking into people's booths that have these technologies and asking them to explain it. Um, those executives should have as their wing person, their CIO, their CMIO, so they can gain that education. It's an investment of several days, there's no question. But for the other 360 days of the year, you're going to be using that information to make strategic decisions. So it's an investment you have to make. Maybe uh, another, and this is really the last one, a little bit of a provocative question. If you weren't at HIMSS, or if you decided not to, to visit the, the global conference, or if you didn't have the opportunity to visit it, how would you search for information? What would your go-to get knowledge strategy be as a healthcare executive? Well, if you didn't come to the global conference, of course, I would then turn you around and get you to our local chapters where they discuss the same things. Uh, no matter where you are in the world, there's a community of hymns or an opportunity to learn um, with other people around you very close by. That's number one. Number two, listening to podcasts like yours, reading uh, the journals that take place where it's health care IT news, or whether we're looking at other publications that exist. There's a ton of information which is out there. 
So the opportunity to learn is there as long as you're willing to pick up and take the time and set it aside and study it. But I have always found personally that conversations like this, um, listening to others that have been through it uh, in a structured manner is is tremendous. So tap into your local communities, make sure people on your staff have a chance to go and then come back and give you summaries. There's way to get to this information and I would encourage everyone to do so. This was the 30th episode of Faces of Digital Health. The next one will be published in approximately two weeks. And if you liked what you heard or are curious to learn more, browse to the other episodes in your podcast player or find Faces of Digital Health on Medium where you can find the overview and summaries of all the existing episodes.